That's a remarkable song that you just sang because the brilliance of the author of that song took a progression. Maybe you noticed it. He started with things that are external and talked about our silver and gold. We think that's probably the hardest thing to give up. It's not. He started with the easier thing, the silver and gold, and he started working down the list, and he said, take my intellect, and he said, take my lips, controlling the tongue, take my heart, take my will, and then take my love and my life. That's an amazing statement to be able to say that in that progression, you want to be totally yielded to God. I, many of you wouldn't know, but before the services, I usually am over there in that prayer room, and in the times that I'm praying for what God's going to do in your hearts and in mine, frankly, um, during the midst of a time like this together, I'm usually really specific. Maybe you don't pray this specific, but I actually say, God, will you take my intellect? Will you take the words that come from my mouth, the enunciation, uh, use the breath in my lungs, use my eyesight, use the gestures? If you don't pray that specifically, you might want to consider doing that as you go into the workforce this week and taking on the jobs that you do or the, the things that you impact throughout the course of a week. Ask God to use very specifically the words that you choose this week and that He would use your heart and your lungs as you put words out there. That, that'll alter the way that you think about the way you choose the words, the decisions that you make. I say that because of what we're about to look at here this morning, and to step into prayer with you like I'd like to do right now, to pray specifically about how God's going to use this, I would say we need to ask God to really affect our intellect and our mind so that we're not distracted from the things that He wants us to see. So let's pray that way right now, and then we'll jump over into the text. Father, I pray specifically for what we're about to take on and how you're going to use it to speak into the lives of hundreds of people those who are virtually part of the service right now and those who are physically present in this auditorium, that your word's going to go forth, Father, and we pray that it would go forth in power and that you would use the Holy Spirit to teach us. So we're asking that you would ha help us to shut out the distractions and the things that might have consumed our mind from things that happened this last week or perhaps things we're anticipating this week. God, we give all that to you, and we push it aside, set it on the shelf, and we ask that you would help us to be fully focused in what you want us to see this morning, and we pray for that in Jesus' matchless name, and all God's people said, amen. If you're new to church or maybe you haven't been in church in a while, um, maybe you're just catching up on where we're at, we're working through a story right now on the life of Joseph. And this is not the Joseph of the New Testament, the father of Jesus. This is Joseph of the Old Testament. He's found in the book of Genesis. So we're just coming to the end of the book of Genesis. We're down to Genesis 43 this morning. And I know some of you are feeling like, if Joseph doesn't reveal himself today, I'm just about going to explode. <laughs> well, he will next week, okay? <laughs> It, it will happen, I promise you. But what happens this morning is so critical to the story that we really need the detail to set up what's going to happen next week. Before we get there, though, I, I want to show you a Greek and a Hebrew word. And I just need to feel like I need to say this every single time. I'm not trying to teach you Greek or Hebrew. I'm not that good at it myself. I'm really dependent upon the, the sources that we have for these things. But these Greek words and these Hebrew words paint such a beautiful picture for us that I feel compelled to show you these things. Let's start here with 1 John 4.15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, there's the word I want you to get down, God abides. God abides in Him and he in God. And the Greek word that's used here, it's in your notes this morning, but you see it on the screen as well. This word meno, 
And it's talking about being in a relationship or in a state of relation to something. So it's also used in association with the thought of dwelling someplace. Now, you notice that it's a verb. And if you remember back to your English class, you remember that verbs are action words. So there's something that's active taking part, a conscious decision to carry out an action. Now, obviously, that's speaking about relationship. If you're going to dwell, if you're going to abide, you're in relationship. Now, that's also captured in Old Testament imagery. Let me show you a couple of examples. First one from Genesis 5, Enoch walked with God. The next one comes from Genesis 6, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Now, here's the Hebrew word that's used. Remember, Greeks, New Testament, Hebrews, Old Testament. Here's the Hebrew word. To walk along and be conversant. And it goes on times more and more and more and more. For you to walk along with somebody, to be conversant with someone, would be a person you're in relationship with. You're going to sit down in a chair next to them and have conversation. We get that. We understand this concept of relationship. Whether we're talking about abiding or talking about dwelling or walking with God, you're talking about relationship with God. Now, the interesting thing is it's very hard to find the word, the English word relationship in the Bible. You actually only find it one place in the New Testament. And it's talking about the relationship between a man and his wife. But the understanding for the reason that it's limited in in such a sparse way in being used in the Bible is this. The Greeks and the Hebrews, when they used language, they spoke in very colorful terms. We're really linear in the way that we describe things. We're very black and white. And so we use very definitive words and we think we understand the definition behind it. But they used word pictures. How do you define the word relationship? What language would you choose to describe that? Well, they describe it by walking with or abiding with. So it's very difficult to capture the word relationship because it's something that you do. It's not defined in black and white. Now, to some degree, we've seen it captured throughout the years in the Western world in poetry. Maybe some of you remember this from seventh or eighth grade, no man is an island. Look with me on the screen. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent. Uh, John Donne, when he wrote that back in the 15th century, was capturing what we know to be a truth. Every single one of us is hardwired from the factory for relationship. And if anything proved that, it was the separation during COVID, the, the lockdowns where we couldn't be with each other. Well, the best we could do is reach out through virtual connection or electronic connection. John Donne captured it very, very well. None of us are an island. We need each other. When well, a far more succinct way and actually a much more accurate way, as you can imagine, God captured it way back in the very beginning of Genesis. Look with me on the screen at Genesis 2.18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Exclamation point on that. And notice, ladies, that it said it's not good for the man to be alone, right? God knew something about men. Men need women in their lives. Men need men in their lives. Women need women. Adam is the word that's used there. It's talking about humankind. There is a beautiful picture of what I've just described to you in Genesis 43 in the life of Joseph. And Joseph is in Egypt, and he's sitting in the most powerful position you can unless you're Pharaoh, 
He's second only to Pharaoh, so he's in the most powerful nation on earth, the mightiest position that he could possibly be in. And it's the time of the 12th dynasty, the Middle Kingdom, around 1895 B.C. And Joseph is in a ruler's position over all of Egypt. He has 11 brothers. Ten of his brothers are on their way back to Egypt because of some directives that their dad had given to them. Their dad came up with a plan of action. And so because of their father, Jacob, he set them up with a strategy. They're making their way back, hoping to gain more supplies for their family. That's where we pick it up in verse 11. Genesis 43, take some of the best products of the land in your bags, carry them down to the man as a present, a little balm and a little honey, aromatic gum and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and arise, return to the man, and may God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man so that he will release to you your other brother and Benjamin. You might remember his other, their other brother is Simeon. Simeon's in the dungeon back in Egypt and he's being held as a hostage. So Jacob's got a tactic. And his tactic is that he thinks they need to use some negotiating techniques, and so he tells them what the negotiations are going to be. Go back and offer to the vizier, the one who's leading Egypt, some of the best products of Canaan. And don't spare anything. Bring him the very best that we have. And then give him some money. Bring him cash. And pay him back for the money that was found in the sacks of the grain. Maybe it was a mistake. We don't know. But bring him some money. And then present to him Benjamin as proof as proof that you're not lying, and then get out of Egypt as quickly, as safely as you can, and bring Simeon in tow with you. But that's not Joseph's plan. Go with me forward. Verse 15, so the men took this present, and they took double the money in their hand, and Benjamin, then they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Now, the balm and the honey and the myrrh and all the spices that they're carrying with them and all the nuts... Those are regional delicacies that you cannot easily get your hands on in Egypt, especially during this period of time when there's a worldwide famine and Egypt is the only one who has grain. So giving away a really valuable food product like that when your country's in the midst of a famine would typically get somebody's attention. So these 10 brothers, they set out across the king's highway. And they're making their way into Egypt, hoping that they're going to gain Simeon's freedom from the dungeon. And perhaps, if they're really fortunate, they're going to buy some more provisions in order to help the family, and they have no idea what's waiting for them. Now, for Benjamin, he's in his mid-20s, and he's loving this. This is fantastic. He's never been to the big city before. He's never seen Egypt. He's never seen the pyramids or the splendor and the power and the might of this nation that he's heard about. But the other nine brothers, the older brothers, they have something far more significant on their hands. They're trying to think through a strategy on this long trip. They've got three very difficult problems for which they have no answer whatsoever. They have to explain why they have all the money. How did they get this money back that had been put in their grain sacks? They don't know how to explain that. It had been left there on the first trip to Egypt. And what strategy are they going to come up with for getting Simeon out of prison? And thirdly, how in the world will they protect Benjamin? 
Well, as these events unfold in this story, as you're about to see, the situation they find themselves in quickly becomes much more threatening than they had ever imagined. Now, very likely, Joseph's got some border guards or some of his own staff watching out for these Hebrews returning to Egypt. How else would they know unless somebody had told them? So some of his staff somewhere along the way have told him that they're coming back in and his plan is ready to be set in motion. He's had three to four months to work on this strategy alone. What Joseph has done is he's arranged for a big party. He's arranged for a banquet at his palatial home. Verse 16, when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his house steward, bring the men into the house and slay an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. So the man did as Joseph said and brought the men to Joseph's house. Now, in the home of wealthy Egyptians, there's typically one steward who's in charge of everything, one what you would call senior butler. He's in charge of the finances, he's in charge of the event planning, he's in charge of the strategies, he's in charge of the household staff. It's the very position that Joseph had held under Potiphar. But now Joseph has this individual who's a steward for him. When he says in verse 16, make ready, it's implying that all the advanced planning has been done. It's time to put this banquet, this extravagant feast underway and all the entertainment that might go with it. Now in the Middle East, as you can imagine in this period of time, when animals were slaughtered, they had to be prepared immediately if they were being used for a banquet, for a feast. No refrigeration system. So the chef or the cook had to take it right from the hands of the butcher in order to begin preparing it right away. And the pride of the Egyptian people, especially the royalty, consisted in the quantity and the quality of the food that was being brought out. And in this case, a great supply. They were very prideful in the fact that they could bring out an inexhaustible supply of food. So when he says in verse 16, they're going to dine with me at noon, he's talking about the main meal of the day. We usually make supper or dinner the main meal of the day, but for the people in the Middle East, dinner is like a snack in the evening that they would eat before they go to bed. Noon is the big meal for them, and then they have time to work off the food. Now, remember what Joseph said to the steward, I want you to bring them into the house and prepare the feast. But the brothers are concluding something is amiss here. Why would he bring us into his mansion? And they conclude very quickly, they are in serious trouble. Next verse, 18. Now the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house, and they said, it is because of the money that was returned in our sacks. The first time that we are being brought, that we were, we are being brought in, that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us for slaves with our donkeys. You can clearly see the apprehension. See, fear has taken over. They've got fear about the money, and they've got anxiety over why in the world are they being brought into the house? What is going on? We're going to be made slaves. Because the last time that they were brought in, something went really bad for them. It's been my experience that people that have a lot of guilt on them tend to make the worst out of every situation and overreact. Well, these brothers have a serious problem, and the guilt that they're carrying is 22 years old. They, 22 years earlier, had sold their brother into the slave trade, and they haven't been able to get rid of the guilt because time does not make guilt go away, and they're wearing this huge weight. 
So they've got this massive secret of the sin that they had committed, and now their first thought is, somebody knows about the money. We know that somebody knows about the money, and we're going to be arrested. We're going to be arrested, we're going to be punished, and we're going to be put in the dungeon, and then we're going to be enslaved. I found that guilt does strange things to your mind. We, we've all had guilt at some degree in our life, and, and we carry it seemingly sometimes on a weekly basis. Guilt will do strange things to you. Did you know that there's a conscience fund for the IRS? They've called it simply the conscience fund. You can look it up yourself, and it's a place where individuals can make, quote, unquote, contributions for things they might have done wrong in the past. Now, the Conscience Fund earned its label from the Civil War era. In 1860, a quartermaster who was supplying the troops with government supplies was pilfering the supplies and keeping some for himself. And apparently, he felt a great degree of guilt, and so he sent a letter to the director of the United States Treasury at that period of time, and he wrote a note and he enclosed a check for $1,500, which got the director of the treasury's attention right away. $1,500 in 1860 was a huge amount of money. And he wrote a note saying, suppose that we just call this a contribution to the conscience fund. Well, the director of the treasury decided, okay, we're going to establish a treasury fund. He opened it with that $1,500, and it's still in place to this very moment in time. However, the IRS has questions about the sincerity of some of the donations. Within the last number of years, a letter came into the IRS, into the Conscience Fund, in which an individual enclosed a check for $1,000, and the letter that was with it read like this, enclosed, please find a check for $1,000. I haven't been able to sleep at night simply because I cheated on my taxes in the past. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you some more. And that's why they question the sincerity, whether or not this is real. Well, in this case, the brother's guilt is very, very real. They're carrying a huge weight on them, and they immediately conclude, this is nothing more than a ploy. He's obviously trying to trap us, that he may seek occasion to fall on us. You see this phrase on the screen, look at it very closely, that he may seek occasion against us to fall upon us. And there's an interesting mix here in the Hebrew language and the way the words are used. This is describing something from the logging industry in which trees were cut down. And they're envisioning this. There's one word that's used to capture a log imagery, and there's another word that's used in the Hebrew language that pictures a log rolling down a hill. So this is the colorful language I was describing to you. They're picturing Joseph falling on them like a log rolling down a hill, and he's about to crush them. Now, if you're in a situation like that, the first thing you naturally want to do is find a mediator. Well, that's absolutely what they do. They turn to the chief steward of the mansion, and they're looking for somebody who's going to be a go-between that might stand between them and Joseph to argue their case, verse 19. So they came near to Joseph's house steward and spoke to him, notice this, at the entrance of the house, and said, O oh my Lord, we indeed came down the first time to buy food, and it came about when we came to the lodging place that we, we opened our sacks, and behold, each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full. So we have brought it back in our hand. We have also brought down other money in our hand to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. So they're really desperate to explain the situation before they ever enter his estate. 
Because who knows what's going to happen once we're inside there. The last time didn't end so well, we all ended up in the dungeon. Now remember in the context of the story, Dad Jacob has given them three strategies. Number one, offer the Egyptian vizier a gift. Number two, give him some money. Number three, you've got to present Benjamin as proof and then get out of Dodge. But their planning has become quickly derailed. This is not what their strategy was. And so there's this extra degree of desperation in their voice when they say, we don't know who put our money in our sacks in verse 22. We don't know who did that. You'll see why I'm explaining this the way that I am. They're trying so desperately to explain themselves, yet what you're going to find is the steward doesn't want anything to do with their explanation. And he won't take their money from them. And you can actually feel the tension in their voice rising up in their throat as you read this. And he has to say to them, calm down, you guys. Just chill out. Well, that's not what he actually says. That's Mark's interpretation. But watch with me. Verse 23, he said, be at ease. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Now, either the chief steward of the house came to faith in God or he's so impressed by Joseph's life. Joseph is his employer. He's so impacted by Joseph's life that he freely uses God talk. I say that for this reason. They don't speak Egyptian. They speak Hebrew. But apparently this guy can speak both languages, Egyptian and Hebrew. And they've gone to him as a go-between. And he has to say to them in Hebrew, this is the way Moses recorded it, shalom. Just be at peace, guys. Calm down. You don't have to be all stressed out over this. I had your money. Your account is paid in full. Now, whether Joseph paid their account when they were gone, we don't know. We don't know the background on this. But they're obviously completely caught off guard and they're unaware now, why in the world are we being taken into Joseph's personal home? The last thing that they expect is to be guest of honor at a banquet. Why in the world would he bring us in, especially in the home of the very man who had been so severe with them the last time that they had been there? So to calm them down, he actually brings Simeon out of the dungeon. Next verse, 23, then he brought Simeon out to them. Then the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water, and they washed their feet, and he gave the donkeys fodder. So they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they had heard that they were to eat a meal there. It's like him saying to them when he brings Simeon out, see, it's all good. It's, it's going to be okay, guys. And just think about the context here. Simeon's been in the dungeon. I'm thinking he's coming out of the dungeon and stepping into the sunlight, blinking at the light, saying, where have you guys been? Four and a half months, man, I've been waiting for you. Now, until this moment, they've been at the front entrance, meaning at the gate. They've been outside looking at the courtyard. And they're speculating, if we go in there, we're going to be in serious trouble. So he has to bring Simeon out to them, and we see now that they're actually brought inside, and they're given this fresh water, which is common in the Middle East, and this guy went out of the way to feed their animals. So now they're chilling down a little bit, and we're told this is what they do in verse 25, just three words. They prepared the present. 
It's very common in the Middle East to return a favor with a favor. You receive a kindness, you're going to do a kindness back. And you're not trying to trump your host, to outdo them. You're just trying to be kind in response to what they would do. So that's common. But what we find in the midst of this story is their focus goes right to the gift because they really want to win Joseph's approval. And so their thinking is, what better time than this? We're being invited into his mansion. We're going to have a feast. We're going to present our gift now. Now think about the staging of how this has happened. The attempt to give the money has been brushed aside. It didn't make the impression that they thought it was going to make. But dad said, if we did these three things, it'll go well. Well, maybe it's the gift. Maybe it's the gift that will be the thing that will actually do it. So they've built up in their mind that this gift is really, really important. Verse 26, when Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present which was in their hand and bowed to the ground before him. Then he asked them about the welfare, their welfare, and said, is your old father well, of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, your father, your servant, our father is well. He is still alive. And they bowed down in homage. If Moses is indeed the author of the book of Genesis, I'm convinced that he is, and many who study this are convinced that Moses is responsible for the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He's writing this down as a historical record. If indeed Moses is the author of this, he obviously felt it very important to tell us that they all bowed down, all 11 of them, and that they did it twice. Now, in the Middle East, general salutations are something you would commonly expect when you would come into a house. We do it today in the West. You come in, you see somebody, maybe you're invited as a guest into their house. Hey, how you doing? How you been? Arm hugs. I haven't seen you in a long time. That, that's common. That's a reflection of what they would have done at the same period of time. And then the offering of a present is the next stage. And when it's done, it's usually done with great fanfare. Now, to the brothers, the most important thing is they've got to get this gift out there. These pistachio nuts, these almonds, these balms, these spices. But what Moses doesn't tell us, we're not told that Joseph even gives a second glance at these gifts, that he's paying any attention to them whatsoever. He doesn't ask about where they came from, how they harvested them, how old they are. He doesn't actually appear to care how can I say that so emphatically? Well, because I know something about Joseph after having studied him for years and years and years. What I do know about Joseph is this. Joseph cares about people. He doesn't care about things so much. And so that's why you find him very quickly on the greeting going right to the issue. How are you guys doing? How is my father which tells me that the very thing that they thought might sway him, all the work to manipulate the moment, turns out to be totally insignificant. Because in reality, New Hope, it's all about relationship. Who do they have the relationship with? So watch the relationship question, verse 27. Is your father still alive? How badly in this moment did Joseph want to say, is my dad still alive? But he can't. 
They can't play that hand. They don't know that it's Joseph. Is, is your father still alive? It's an ancient Hebrew idiom for saying, how is and then that person doing? And it's not just talking about their physical health. The ancient Hebrew idiom is talking about the entire person. What's their mental state of mind? How is their physical being? How is their spirit? Are they encouraged or are they sad? What's going on with them? So it's much more than just a question about health. So it's in the midst of this paragraph, this paragraph about the presence and about the personal concerns that we discover, Moses wants us to see this really significant detail. Verse 26 and in verse 28, they bowed down in homage. All 11 brothers bow down exactly as Joseph had dreamed 22 years earlier. Benjamin had to be there in order for all 11 of them to bow. For us in 2023, New Hope, it should cause us to step back and present ourselves with a question. When you read something like that, you quickly don't want that just to go on by you. You would rather say to yourself, and you can answer this out loud if you would like to, is God good to His Word? Yeah. Wow, 22 years, and it happened exactly as God had said it would happen, which would take you to the next question. Is God incredibly patient? Yeah, way more than us. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His timing is certainly not our timing because He does things way different than us. Next verse, verse 29, as he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother said, his mother's son, he said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, may God be gracious to you, my son. Remember, he's 39. Simeon, I'm sorry, Benjamin is, is in his mid-20s, and he asked this question, is this your youngest brother? And he doesn't even let them answer before he pronounces a blessing. God be gracious to you. This is the first real conversation he's had with his brother since he was taken 22 years ago and kidnapped and sold into the slave trade. Benjamin was somewhere between two and five years old when Joseph was taken. He's never interacted with him as an adult. He doesn't know for sure, but he's thinking, this has got to be him. And then he pronounces a blessing on Benjamin, which frankly just has to sound pretty strange coming from an Egyptian speaking through an interpreter. Like, what are they to make of that? This Egyptian is speaking about God blessing our brother? And it makes me think of what's written in Numbers chapter 6, verse 25. You see this, the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. That's what Joseph is speaking. He's speaking God talk over our brother. What is going on here? Some of us have gone months and some of us have gone years without seeing a family member, somebody who's very precious to us. Can you imagine going 20 years plus with never a chance to even speak a word to them? And remember, this is way before FaceTime before any text messaging, there's no emailing, they've never exchanged a letter, 
He doesn't even know what his brother looks like. Emotion would overwhelm you and sweep on top of you, and we find that very thing in verse 30. Joseph hurried out, for he was deeply stirred, and I need you to pause right there for just a moment. The word that's used here is kamar, and I told you that the Hebrews, the ancient Hebrews especially, spoke in beautiful word pictures. So when you see this word kamar, this is what I want you to picture. Picture a grape that's fully plump, very juicy. Somebody wants to make that grape into a raisin. And so they set it out to dry. And as it dries, it shrivels and it shrinks. The word kamar is a word that's used in Hebrew for something shrinking and collapsing in on itself. So picture a shriveled raisin. When you picture this descriptive word here, Joseph hurried out, for he was deeply kamar over his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. Seeing the only son of his own mother is too much. And you and I living in this day and age, we have to remind ourselves that the brothers still don't know this is Joseph. See, it's only when we actually see him hurry out of the room to another room to hide his kamar that we're sure his identity is still unknown. He can't let them see him collapse, physically closing in on himself. Verse 31, then he washed his face and came out and he controlled himself and said, serve the meal. So they served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews for that is loathsome to the Egyptians. I love the detail here. I'm just saying. Okay, there's a lot going on right there. So he's washing his face and like the Brits say, keep a stiff upper lip. He's not letting them see his lip quiver anymore. He's, he's got control of his emotions. And then we see, serve the feast. He claps his hands and they begin bringing the food out. All of this speaks to the authenticity and the credibility of the Bible. This is how theologians, people who study the Bible, especially those who research history, understand the validity of Scripture and how you can authenticate what's being said here. Because what was just communicated and what you just read was really consistent with Egyptian culture. Native Egyptians would not eat with the Semites, the Semites coming from Canaan. They would not associate together. They wouldn't use the same utensils together. So we find this verse telling us that the Egyptian servants, they're at one table. That was really consistent. Joseph is at another table by himself, and his brothers are separated, yet they're in front of him, and he can see them, which also confirms to us that this happened during the Middle Kingdom. This isn't during the rule of the Hyksos period, but this is actually during the 12th dynasty because this is exactly how the Egyptians behaved at this period of time. These are native Egyptian behaviors. So as far as his brothers know, he's Egyptian in every single way. Verse 33, now they were seated before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in astonishment. So the seating doesn't pass without notice. They're thinking, how in the world can this be? 
Now, next week when Joseph reveals himself, you're going to see that the chief house steward plays on this moment by saying, my Lord, Joseph, he's, they don't know that he's Joseph, but my Lord, he's, he's, a gifted, with, he's gifted with divination. They're, they're going to play on this thought because they're seated exactly according to birth order, Reuben, the oldest, all the way down to Benjamin. How in the world could the Egyptians know this? Verse 34, he took portions to them from his own table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. So they feasted and drank freely with him. This great honor and the associated entertainment that would have undoubtedly taken place, it it banishes all their anxiety. It takes down all the defenses. They let their guard down. Now, if you've arrived in a country where you have just come from your own country, which is being destroyed by famine, and you've seen people literally starving to death, how good does this banquet look to you? How hyped up are you for this moment? And they begin piling on the food. But Benjamin's platter has five times more chips and salsa than everybody else, five times more steak and shrimp than anybody else. And they just keep bringing the food and bringing the food and bringing the food. There's two distinct methods in the Egyptian culture for honoring someone. When the host wanted to honor a guest, they had one of two options. It was either in the quality or in the quantity. They would typically do one or the other. So the quality would be if the host would take a portion of his serving from his own plate and put it on the platter of the person that they wanted to honor. The other way to do it would be to give a double portion to the person that you want to honor. Joseph has done both for Benjamin, and he's given him not double, but he's given him five times as much. At one time, these brothers were so jealous of Joseph because of special treatment. They were consumed with rage and they could not contain it. So now the question is, how are they going to treat Benjamin? So Joseph is really, really smart. He's using his intellect to get to the core issue that he wants to know about. Have these guys really changed? Are they different? And Joseph is drawing his brothers out, and he wants to see their true feelings about Benjamin. Will they envy him and will they hate him just like they did Joseph on account of this huge distinction? Well, gratefully, this passage shows us that they passed this first test. We're told that they feasted and they drank freely. There's no anger. There's no jealousy. Verse 34, so they feasted and drank freely with him. In a day of famine, it is one thing to be fed, but they feast They've not had a dinner like this in years, and all the anxiety and all the cares are scattered away, and they're at ease in this moment, and they're enjoying the presence of what they don't know is their brother. Notice all the way through this church that Joseph has only asked for the relationship. He wasn't about manipulating them to get money from them. He's looking to see the relationship restored. He wanted restored what had been lost. He's not looking for the goods. 
and he's not manipulating them for money, and there's no bribe necessary. They only have to bring themselves to the table. Joseph doesn't need the money. He doesn't need the gifts or the attempt to try and manipulate him. What what I want to wrap this with as you step into communion in just a moment is the contrast between the fears and the tears. Because Jacob was so consumed with fear, he was trying to put together a good concoction that he could negotiate with for this collection of presents. You've got to take the man in Egypt these gifts. And because of fears, it drives the brothers to try and structure a deal. But contrast that with the tears of Joseph. The tears of Joseph are because of a lost relationship. How like our God is this new hope? How like our God to demonstrate that very same thing? In our human nature, I'm sure you're the same as me. I I know that I've tried to do this. In our human nature, we want to try and do the things that we think will make God like us. So we step into systems of works. We're trying to impress God. But when we see Jesus, especially in his times of his greatest grief, his tears are over the lost relationship. It's just mentally, let me take you to a moment where Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. It's the week he's gonna be crucified. He's about to die for your sins. He's descending the Mount of Olives. And we're told in that moment, as he's coming down, he stops and he looks out over Jerusalem what we typically call Palm Sunday or maybe Palm Monday, he's entering the city and he says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you under my wings as a chick, hen gathers a chick under her wings, but you would not, you would not have the relationship with me. God crying in that moment. Scripture says Jesus wept at that period of time. Why would God be crying over the relationship that was lost because of sin? What sin has done to us. Sin separates us from the relationship with God. Now put it in context with what you've just read. These brothers travel all the way back to Egypt. They come into Joseph's very presence in his palatial home and they're perceiving in their minds the only way that they can achieve salvation is if they hope to achieve it is in their works, their works of money and their works of pistachio nuts. If we really impress him and we really manipulate the moment well, maybe we'll be saved. Can I say very, very clearly, it is not a system of works that endeared these brothers to Joseph, it's the relationship. It is not a system of works that brings you into relationship with God. It is not clever negotiating. It is not manipulating on our part. We cannot tip the scales in our favor. Ephesians 2 makes it very, very, very clear. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God and not the result of works. Praise God for that reality. You don't have to manipulate God. You don't have to buy God. You don't have to pay the price. Jesus already did. And he paid it for every single one who would receive it. It is only by the finished work of Jesus that we are restored to God. You're new to church and you're wondering what saves you? How do I get to a relationship with God? 
You have to have a relationship with the true ruler of the house, and his name is Jesus. There is a day when you will stand before the judgment throne of God, and the only thing that he will be interested in is this. Do you truly have a relationship with me through the finished work of Jesus? And I promise you, you cannot bring enough pistachio nuts with you into heaven to manipulate. God cannot be purchased. He has to be able to see you as righteous. And the way that he sees you righteous is only through the blood of Jesus. That alone can make you righteous to stand before God Almighty. So today we began speaking about a truth. This is what I wrap it with. We began speaking of the truth of how abiding looks. Maybe you've got a new image of God this morning. The God who wants to feast with you, who wants the relationship with you. Let me point you back to 1 John 4:15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. That exact same thought is amplified in Romans. Romans 10:9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If on the day of judgment, I'm sorry to tell you this, this is really hard news. If on the day of judgment, you don't have relationship with God through Jesus Christ our Lord, he will say to you, depart from me, I never knew you. I had no relationship with you. But if on the day of judgment you stand before God and he acknowledges Yeah, you absolutely had relationship with me through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He's going to say, welcome into the kingdom that's been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There is a feast waiting for you. We have party plans you can't imagine. That's what's waiting in store for those who belong to God. So because we have that relationship, Jesus said, as we transition to communion right now, he wanted us to remember about the relationship. You remember what I did for you Let me take you to this passage. Paul writes these very things that we were told that he got directly from the Lord, and we also are told on the night that Jesus was betrayed, these very things happened. Paul is just repeating things that the Gospels already said happened. Look at how often Jesus gives this directive, and listen to the directive. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Twice within one paragraph, Jesus says, I know that you are prone to forget You do this to remember what I did for you. Do this in remembrance of me. God wants this relationship with us to the degree that he sent his own son to die for us so that we would be restored in relationship. So Paul writes these things because he said, you better not take this lightly because what you're doing is you're actually witnessing when you take communion that you believe these things. If you pick up the elements, the cup and the bread, You're actually saying to the person on your right and on your left, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe that he died for me, that he was resurrected, and he's coming again. 
That's exactly what Paul writes right here. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Well, if He died, that means He was resurrected and He's coming back again, and that's what Paul summarized right there. He says, you better not take this lightly, and he gives the warning. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Our tradition here at New Hope is before you would come to one of these tables, and there in the back and here in the front to make it easy for you, we would ask one thing of you, that you are truly in relationship with Christ. And if you are a Christian and you have something that you need to confess, this is the time to examine yourself. You can do it in the quietness of your seat and talk to God about that issue. When you're ready, come up to the table. But if you haven't yet decided whether or not you believe that Jesus actually is the Son of God, it'd be best that you not participate because of the warning. You do not want to take this lightly. So this time right now is for you to examine yourself. Where are you at on the issue? What do you have to talk to the Father about? And when you're ready, come up to the table, pick up the elements, take them back to your seat, and I'll talk you through the rest. If you need someone to pray with you after the service, the prayer room will be open. There'll be individuals over there. And if you'd like to know more about this relationship with Jesus, I'll be down here in the front after the service. I'd be honored to talk with you, what that can mean for your life. If you are a person who finds himself not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ and you're physically able to stand, would you stand with me? You're about to be a witness. It was on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he held up bread and he said, this bread, this is my body which is broken for you. In the same meal, we understand it was a Passover meal and it was the third cup, the cup of redemption, and he held it up and said, this is my blood which is shed for you. Father, I thank you for the witness that has taken place in this room. For individuals who are not ashamed, we recognize that we don't do this to be saved, but because we are and we belong to you. We're grateful for the evidence in our life that you work through us and that we can do great works on behalf of the kingdom. But we also freely acknowledge those works don't save us. Your son Jesus does. So we're thankful for him. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did for us. It's in the matchless name of our soon-coming King that we all say, Amen. Amen. Amen.